Thank you so much, Aaron. That was wonderful. Ephesians 4 begins, Therefore I urge, I the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you are called in the hope of of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but in each of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he launches on a discussion of spiritual gifts, the unity and diversity of the body of Christ. What a blessing to join together tonight in fellowship in the Word. Let's take a moment. And if you're not walking in fellowship with God, described by the Apostle John as walking in the light, as he himself is in the light, that means that there's a darkness problem. The darkness is personal sin, which could be, I believe, omission, not doing what he said, or commission, doing what he said not to do or thinking or saying or something that, that you understand to be a sin. If you have a sin problem, the solution to it is to stop running and stop lying to yourself and stop, stop uh, pretending and tell the truth. And that's where the fellowship uh, begins, telling the truth and uh, opening back up into fellowship with God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and give you that opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for eternal life, for fellowship with you through your Son, for the privilege we have tonight to think your thoughts after you according to what the Apostle Paul has given us through the Spirit in Ephesians, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, considering what it is to be spiritual and the riches that we have of your grace and spirituality, Christian spirituality. Enable us, Father, to walk by your Spirit, to be pleasing to you, to truly enjoy communion, fellowship with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn your Bibles this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Learning about the things, the things that God has prepared for those who love Him in verse 9. And I'm calling tonight our discussion the great contrast. Paul draws a great distinction in this passage between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, which is received from the Holy Spirit through the apostles to us. And the Holy Spirit mediates it from the apostles to us. From the Holy Spirit to the apostles to us, mediated by the Spirit of God. We're looking at tonight um, this contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God in the Word of God. And the reason I want to spend this time, we talked last week about authority, that the problem in Corinth is authority And when Paul says, I'm not coming to you on my own authority or with the wisdom of the world, I'm coming to you with the revelation I got from God, from his wisdom. And he describes these blessings of wisdom and revelation from God as the things which eye has not seen, ears not heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. This is what he's describing, the word of God that he has. And if we're not going to submit to it, we will not be spiritual. If we're not going to avail ourselves of the word of God, and let the, the wisdom of the world just take a pause for a second and listen to the word of God. We're not. We're not going to enjoy Christian spirituality. And that's 
That's what the discussion on authority was about. If, if Paul is an apostle of Jesus, then he carries a special stewardship of authority called apostleship, and we need to submit. And that's what's wrong with Corinth. And uh, learn from their mistake. Don't you make that same mistake. So tonight we're looking at this contrast, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God through the apostles. And I want to open tonight with an illustration from uh, one of our favorite Christmas songs. Um, and uh, can anybody tell me what the Christmas song might be based on the image at, the, uh, my, at my 6 o'clock? Don't you say it. I already told you. So don't, don't cheat. Pastor, that doesn't look like a Christmas song like Christmas. That looks like a winter fun song that kids sing at Christmas time that doesn't have a lot to do with Christmas. And you're right, it's Jingle Bells. James, Lord Pierpoint, what a great middle name. I will never do that to a child. But, um, but if my middle name was Lord, I'd probably tell people. <laughs> you would know my middle name. You don't usually know people's middle name. You know Lewis Perry Chafer. Um, you know Benjamin Warfield's middle name was started with a B. Uh, but anyway, um, James Lord Pill Pierpoint died 1893, born uh, 1822, um, was a clerk in the Civil War. His father was a Unitarian pastor, which means he, he doesn't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Um, Unitarian pastor in, in Boston and uh, other states, other places he pastored through the years. His father was a na- or, uh, an army chaplain in the Civil War for the Union. Um, and uh, boy, I would have been upset if I was the commander and they sent me a Unitarian as a chaplain. I would have said, well, we've got to get the chaplain saved. <laughs> that would have been frustrating. But that's, that's what has to happen sometimes. But um, he wrote the beloved uh, Christmas song. It's not a carol because carol implies worship. It's a Christmas song, Jingle Bells, and you know how it goes. My favorite part of Jingle Bells, though, is the part we don't usually sing. It tells you that they're out on a date and the kid doesn't know how to drive and he flips over. Um, that's, uh, that's the part that always resonates with me. You know what I'm talking about. You don't give the reins to a teenager, right? I mean, unless you want to get upsought. <laughs> Um, a, day or two, a, a, a day or two ago, I thought I'd take a ride, and soon Miss Fanny Bright was sitting by my side. That's good. Young people. Now, no, nothing wrong so far. Now, he's about to tell me that I would not want him to drive my daughter anywhere. But anyway, because it's all very fun. She was seated by my side. The horse was lean and lank. Misfortune seemed his lot, so now he's blaming the horse. The first thing Adam does in the garden is he says the woman did it, and then she says the snake did it, so he's going to blame the horse, but we'll continue. Misfortune seemed as lot, he got into a drifted bank, and then we got upsought. What he means is, and that's horrible English, but it's very popular, I mean it sells, is um, the horse is to blame for flipping our our, uh, sleigh over, and we have no idea what happened to Fanny. I hope she didn't do much worse than just land on her Fanny. Um, There are many versions, many, uh, many verses to this. Now the ground is white, go it while you're young, take the girls tonight, sing this slaying song, just get a bobtailed nag or bay, 240 as his speed, hitch him to an open sleigh and crack, you'll take the lead. Um, it's fun, the kids love it. I mean, when we had, when we, when we were, I think it was baby Isaiah. <laughs> He's old enough now to be embarrassed by me talking about his baby Isaiah, that's awesome. Everybody look. Okay, back to me. Uh, <laughs> was it you that we started calling it dit dot dow? 
Was that you? And then we taught, and then you taught him when he was baby. Okay. Dit dot dow, dit dot dow. That's how they sing it when they're babies because it's just fun. Nothing wrong with fun, but we are talking about the contrast, the great contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Uh, this man had an interesting life. Um, he went out to the gold rush out to California, and he went back, he ended up coming back east with his tail between his legs, legs as a failure. And um, you probably don't know, um, he, he wrote a lot of, of music, a lot of secular music. He ended up being the organist and uh, music director in a church that his brother pastored in a Unitarian church in Georgia. And uh, they were all up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, he was born in Boston, and he died in Winter Haven, Florida. Doesn't that sound right? That's the American original right there. Born up here, died down in Florida. Um, and uh, he lived a, a good long life for those days. And um, so he wrote a song that's in the Library of Congress. You can you know, look it up. I don't recommend. I'll just go through it with you real quick. He, he was a poet. He had a good, a good, I mean, except for the horse getting upsot, you know, he was pretty good at his craft. And um, he wrote a song called The Returned Californian. And I wonder if it's autobiographical. Kind of seems like it is, but we'll, I'll try to read it with a little bit of poetic cadence. He said, oh, I'm going far away from my creditors just now. I ain't the ten to pay them, and they're kicking up a row. I ain't one of those lucky ones that works for Uncle Sam. There's no chance for speculation, and the mines ain't worth a copper. <laughs> That's a penny, because we're in church. Um, there's my tailor vowing vengeance, and he swears he'll give me fits, and sheriffs running after me with pockets full of writs. And whichever way I turn, I am sure to meet a done. So I guess the best thing I can do is just to cut and run. So we're going to go fail in business and then have all these creditors and be in debt and our credit shot. And we're just going to run away back east. <laughs> it gets better. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, I wish those tarnal critters that wrote home about the gold were in the place the scriptures say is never very cold. For they told about the heaps of dust and lumps so mighty big, but they never said a single word how hard they were to dig. So I went up to the mines and I helped to turn a stream and got trusted on the strength of that delusive golden dream. But when we got to digging, we found twas all a sham. We found twas all a sham. And we who damned the rivers by our creditors were damned. <laughs> oh, I'm... <laughs> I'm going far away, but I don't know where I'll go. You could probably. You could. We're not going to. I ought to travel homeward, but they'll laugh at me, I know. For I told them when I started I was bound to make a pile. Uh, but if they could only see me now, I rather guess they'd smile. <laughs> if these United States, if of these United States I was the president, no man that owed another should ever pay a cent. And he who dunned another should be banished far away, and attention to the pretty girls is all a man should pay. Oh, jingle bells. That's, uh, that's this poet who wrote some, some fun songs. And uh, what a horrible, horrible morality being portrayed here in his poem. And I, I don't necessarily attribute that to him. But, um, but this is, this is the, um, what we have in the treasury of this man's life. is what he has to show for his life. And uh, he, he's lived all his life in this Unitarian error that denies the deity of Jesus Christ. That's what Unitarian means, is that God is not Jesus, and Jesus is not God. God the Father is not God the Son, but Jesus Christ is of one essence with the Father and the Spirit. And the Unitarians don't believe that. And um, we love them and want them to come to know Jesus as their Savior. 
Well, anyway, um, we'll keep this in mind about the, um, the alternatives because I want you to hear at the end tonight from another poet who wrote something that we love to sing uh, in this church and uh, how markedly different is the, 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 the image of God expressed in creativity when you um, express it towards the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just by way of contra- uh, context, in verse 6, we have Paul contrasting with the, um, the wisdom of the world. However, we do speak wisdom in the evaluation of the mature. The mature believer believes that he hears wisdom when we give the word of God because he has discernment. Now, it is not the wisdom of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the concealed or the hidden mystery which God ordained before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age have known, for if they had known this mystery, but they didn't, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. This is the, this is the admission ticket to get into this wisdom of God. You have to start with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is foolishness and makes no sense. And the world is constantly opposed to this message of love from God. It is foolishness to the world, and they don't welcome this wisdom. And so um, I wanted to take us up. That, that's verse 8. I wanted to then go to verse 9 and through 12. And we're going to talk about the things. But just as it is written, eye has not seen, ears have not heard, and into the heart of man have not entered the things God has prepared for those who love him. What we're saying is, again, that if you can see it or hear it or hear of it or think of it, this is not what we're talking about when we talk about God's wisdom and his self-revelation. The word of God through the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ is the infinite riches of God's grace lavished richly upon us, the children of God. And he wants us to know him, and so he gives us the greatest blessing you can ever imagine, and you can't imagine. He gives us himself, knowledge of himself, a personal knowledge, relational knowledge of himself. And that's this hidden wisdom, the things that eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard. But, and, I, and I know that's true because of verse 10, but to us, God has revealed these things through his spirit. God has revealed to us these things through his spirit. Now, I had an interesting question Sunday. It was a great question about the um, spirit described, because in one of these verses I'm going to say, uh, the spirit is the human spirit. And, but usually it's the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it's the world's spirit of the times, the attitude people have or the mindset of the world. And um, the question was, why can't it always be the human spirit that God regenerates? When you're born again, you get a new spirit. Well, and you do. You are, if you're a believer in Christ, you are born again. And that, that's called regeneration. And that is a new spiritual life that you didn't have before. And so when, um, when you get to this verse and you say his spirit, this is, to me, this is kind of a slam dunk that he has to be talking about the third person of the Trinity most of the time through this passage. And I'll show you that as we go through. For the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, searches all things, even the deep things of God. Now that word searches is a way of saying can access and has knowledge of. That's what that means. That's, that's the idea of searching as it's used here. I believe it's a Greek idiom where you can search your mind and think through what you know. And so just think. If someone tells you, think, um, 
think about what your opinion is of whether or not people should eat meat. Think about it. What do you know about that? Immediately, if I start ask, if I ask you a question you're interested in thinking about, most of you will be like, Genesis 9, let's have steak. But, um, but if you think about the question, you start amassing what you know in your mind to think through. And some of it is how you feel, and some of it is how we've always done. But you're searching. You're, I believe thinking and searching are similar tasks in the way the words are used. And I think that's what you have here, is that the Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of God. He is God. And that's what he's doing. He's comparing like with like, as we said. For who among men has known the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? See, the knowing and searching are parallel ideas. You and yourself know yourself. So God and himself knows himself. And so God's going to have to bridge that gap between us and God for us to know him. Now the world, uh, the, the Enlightenment philosophers knew that. The world knows this. The people that were, well, we didn't get it from the Bible, but, you know, God's going to have to do something. Immanuel Kant's my favorite uh, person to talk about this way. Um, And if you haven't read anything from Immanuel Kant, I'm not going to give you a sufficient summary right now to really think you can argue for or against him or anything like that. But just as an illustration, he is probably the most important thinker who has told the world and all the professors and all the teachers who listen to the professors how to think about life. Kant, I think, is the most clear reason why we're not allowed to talk about Jesus in public, why you can't have prayer in school, why we're supposed to cause this great separation between the secular and the sacred. It's Immanuel Kant, who probably was a Christian, but he didn't think Christian thoughts, and he didn't write Christian writing uh, when, you, when you boil it down. His critique of pure reason is where to start. I would start with the English and not try to the German first off. And I haven't read it in English. I've read people that interact with it and quote it, and that's full disclosure. But here's the summary, and any high school philosophy course would say this. Summary of Kant is that there is this impossible barrier that we can't cross between one type of knowledge and another type of knowledge. One type of knowledge is the the phenomenal things that you can see and touch. And the other type beyond this barrier you'll never get past is the noumenal the spiritual, the things of, what we would say, the things of God. And you can't know those things in the way we know the physical phenomena of this world. And so, no one really knows those things. And in fact, furthermore, what you know that Kant would say, what you know is what you know through uh, your filter of your perception. You don't really know the thing, you know the perception you have of the thing. Whatever. Here's the problem with that, and, and it's important that you understand that this is the where, where the world's coming from. When you say Jesus died for your sins according to the Scriptures, and he rose from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures, the world, post-Kant, says you don't really know that. You don't really know that. And we say, yes, we do. And they say, well, how can you say you know that? And I say, revelation. God has revealed it to us through the apostles of Jesus Christ. He revealed it to the apostles through their eyewitness testimony of the resurrection. They saw the risen Christ. That's called revelation. Well, you know, I didn't see it, so it wasn't a revelation to me. No, we're saying when the apostles write the New Testament, that is God revealing himself through their writings, and that's what we believe. So when I read the scriptures with the eyes of faith, I am receiving, you see, that revelation. That's what the Bible is. 
that special revelation is in the very words the apostles wrote. And so I know what they're saying and I believe it and I think that is a form of knowledge. But Kant says no. The world says no. You don't really know. And I say, okay, you believe I don't know. I believe I do know. It, we're on a kind of a level playing field at that point. Well, you can't prove it and all these other concerns. I don't think we have to see. In fact, eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard. Neither has it entered the heart of man. All these things of God's revelation that he's prepared for us. You see the problem? You see the problem? So you either submit to the revelation, which is the Bible, or you are hopeless to know the things of God. It's, his, it's God's design. Now, what does man do? What's man doing when he says, I don't really know? He's rebelling against God who said this is how it is. Um, so the, um, the idea of knowing is really central to what he's talking about here. And if, has anybody ever studied anything in epistemology? Any of you young college smart, smarty pants, have y'all studied epistemology? Yeah, you look it up in Wikipedia, there's lots of stuff on there. You're going to take a philosophy course and you're going to hear all about epistemology and all these Christians that stop believing the Bible like they, Rene Descartes. And, um, and all, a lot of the philosophy that was done in the Enlightenment was, some think, just a distraction from real philosophy. A lot of it was epistemology. How do you know what you know? And you can just navel gaze and look in a mirror with a mirror behind it forever and never really come to any convictions and conclusions. But um, what you want to come away with in this is the core passage on Christian epistemology is 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 3, 3. This is your central locus on epistemology. When you, like if you're going to go into the, to the trenches and study Kant in college, you better go armed, go equipped with submission to the apostle and his claim that the revelation I've received, uh, the, the 1 Corinthians 2, 9 things, which the eye hasn't seen and the ear hasn't heard, these riches of God's grace, this is way better than the wisdom of the world. Let's get back to reading the scriptures together. For who among man has known the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? And so like is compared with like. So also the things of God no one has known except the spirit of God. And um, again, I told you when, when it's the Holy Spirit, there are statements in Greek that make me say this. This is a phrase in Greek that is always the Holy Spirit as far as I've seen. The Spirit of God is one of the several names in the Bible for the third person of the Trinity. And this gets into Trinitarian theology and specifically pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Do you know why you believe that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity? Do you know why you believe that? Do you know where you got that idea? Have you thought that one through? Search your thinking. <laughs> Think through, how do you know that the Holy Spirit is God? How do you know He's of one essence with the Father and the Son? How do you know that the Holy Spirit is a person and not an influence or a force? Have you ever thought these things before? This is really important because we're coming to this passage assuming the Holy Spirit is a personal, a personal uh, member of the Godhead, one of the three who is one in essence and three in person. This is, um, I'll just quick thumbnail sketch of biblical soter or, uh, pneumatology or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The point is the Holy Spirit does things only persons do. The Holy Spirit does things only persons do. He creates, he teaches, he knows, he reveals, 
the, the verbs attributed to him, one of the great arguments for the personhood of the Spirit are that he does the things that persons do, but he operates behind the scenes. And so this is just one example of how we think through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to spend the evening on that doctrine, but um, when you talk about the Pneuma uh, Tutheo, the Spirit of God, this is Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of the Lord was hovering or, or fluttering over the surface of the deep. He's in creation. He's right there in the beginning of God's creation. He's um, one of the Godhead three. And uh, all through the scripture, the Spirit of God burst forth upon Samson, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit. This is the third person of the Trinity. And so no one knows um, the, the things of God except the Spirit of God. And that, that's a way of analogy. This is taking the Holy Spirit portraying as part of God the spirit part. Now that doesn't work with the whole Bible because God is spirit, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are spirit. But you can see by analogy that if you were going to take God as pieces, the spirit part would be God, the Holy Spirit. That's what they're saying. Now don't misunderstand. That's not how God is. You have one God who is in three distinct persons, yet sharing one essence. And so no one has known the things of God except the spirit of God, but we the spirit of the world have not received. Now this is the great contrast. The spirit of the world and the spirit of God. The spirit of the world and the spirit of God. What is the spirit of the world? Now some have thought that this means that um, we're talking about receiving some sort of personal indwelling from a spirit that is not from God but is from the world. And that is not what Paul means. He is using language that people in his day were very quick to switch between the different meanings of spirit, of pneuma. He could say the wind is blowing pretty strong and use the word pneuma for the wind. He could have done it in the same sentence and people wouldn't have been confused. And by the way, by the way, if I say I am going to the bank, some of you are thinking I'm going to go deposit some money or more likely withdraw some money. Wait, you can't do that. Better deposit some money. Or some of you are thinking, I'm going to go fishing, right? Because I'm going to the bank. Or maybe I have to donate some blood. Hopefully don't need any, right? And so these, but nobody ever thinks that we have money down by the water. That's not what we mean when we say bank. And so it depends on the context in which I'm using it. And so that's what's very challenging about this passage. I think epistemology is one of the hardest topics in all uh, studies. In all, how do you know what you know is the hardest question. The, the easiest answer is because the Bible tells me so. Thank you, West Point. Thank you, God, for giving us that little Jesus Loves Me song they composed at Constitution Island at West Point. Jesus loves me. I know this because the Bible tells me. That's revelation. And that's the most important question on epistemology. Let me give you an example of why that's so helpful. There I was, personal life example, studying electrical engineering at West Point. Well, a horrible thing to do. I mean, it was a real honor and privilege to do that, but it takes a certain cast of mind to do that well, and that was not the cast of mind with which I was equipped, despite my efforts to make it otherwise. So I studied electrical engineering, got myself into this thing, said I was going to do it. I saw it through, through to the end and have since then, 20 years later, done zero electrical engineering. But I did learn a lot. But here's the question that my little mind was constantly going to. You're teaching me how to solve 
for various problems in a circuit. You're teaching me how to use these different equations to manipulate and understand the function of electricity. But what I want to know is why does this thing even work? How? What is causing this? And while we're talking about solid state devices, what is whole flow? Don't worry about it. We're just going to keep, we're just going to learn that, just memorize it. It's true. No one really knows, but they keep baking silicon disks and we keep having computers. And so most of you probably have no idea about these kinds of things that I'm talking about, but I didn't either. And that's, we have that in common. But I kept coming to this very important theistic conclusion when I asked why and how. Why gravity? Why we, I learned how in physics, how gravity can be the product somehow of masses of two objects and their attraction with one another. And the equations for gravity have the two masses involved with various constants that explain how much the force will be between them. We can calculate it, but why do we have it? Why does it exist? And the beauty, the, sorry about that, the beauty of, um, of my electrical engineering training was... Um, I was always skipping to the end of that reasoning process and saying, because God makes it so. And I learned in this applied discipline of applied physics, which is electrical engineering, I learned what all the great physicists would have to tell you. Richard Feynman, I watched some, some lectures of his later, uh, the, the best explainer of physics probably in the 20th century for, for, in a classroom, and also uh, the one who really pioneered quantum electrodynamics in, in that field of physics. Richard Feynman, you should Google him and watch, if you don't know physics, watch Feynman. He explains physics. His grandson says, Grandpa, why do magnets work? And he says, well, I've got two answers. One, I can give you an equation that says how they work. And most students are satisfied. But let me tell you the truth. We don't know. We just know they do work. Grandpa, how does gravity work? God. And this is what James Clark Maxwell learned. His mother taught him. He was the one that pioneered all the, all the science that gives us cell phones. James Clark Maxwell, Maxwell's laws. Maxwell says, Maxwell's mother taught him as, as she saw her little son growing as a little budding scientist, you need to look up through nature to nature's God. You look up through nature to nature's God. And that's what I learned um, as, a, as a Bible studying cadet struggling through the hardest thing I'd ever done academically, probably still true. I don't know, but still close. And, and, um, and I was always satisfied that I might not be really good at manipulating these things, but I know the one who makes it work. And by the way, my favorite thing that I ever learned besides that, that God, God's the reason ultimately that, that you can never get a better answer than it works because God makes it work. When you ask all the why questions in physics is that, um, all of your digital world, everything, all the digital stuff, whether it's your phone or your digital circuitry and your, your, your transistor radio, it's a one and a zero. It's either off or it's on. That's all. It's, 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 it's yes or no. It's not maybe. It's yes or no. And every circuit is billions and, and gazillions, that's a technical term, gazillions of yes and no's that turn off and on and switch off and on to make logic work where you actually end up with all the digital world that we have. It's all on or off, light and dark, binary, one or the other. And, um, and I don't always see how things are yes and no. I don't always see the black and the white of things, but the one that I serve, he does. There is no shadow of turning in him. He is yes and he is no. He is right or wrong. And I'm not, it's not me. But I know the one who does know, and he is only righteous, only truth, 
only justice, only love, none of the alternatives to righteousness and so forth. So, so this is the spirit of the world that I'm getting to. The spirit of the world is what man can do in autonomous rebellion against God and say, I don't have to submit to my creator. What else you got for me? And he starts looking around in creation. He starts messing with God's materials that he gave us to, to dominate, to exercise dominion over. And he uses them to prop himself up and eventually worships the creature, worships, worships the creation. And this is the ultimate spirit of the world. It's idolatry. It's the phenomena of this earth without benefit of the revelation of God to explain that, well, you don't need to worship your digital circuits and, and, and worship your, with your little thumb exercises. All right, that's not life. Okay, that's not life. And the, how many kids do I talk to that want to major in game design? <laughs> Every teenager I talk to, I'm gonna, what are you going to do with your life? I love to ask teenagers that. They're all like, oh, I hate these kind of adults that ask these kind of questions. They all, want to, they all want to study how to make video games. But see, this is all they know. This is, there is no depth to their experience yet, but they've had wonderful visual chemical things going on in their brains from hours and hours and years, really, aggregate in doing this. And they haven't come to the end of it yet, but they're hooked and they're little drug addicts to this dopamine hit that you get from video games. They are. And so that, and so that I believe that this is a form of self-satisfying idolatry, but it's just the creation. It's just on and off. It's just, it's just little transistor circuits. Now, if you say no to your father while he's teaching the Bible to God's people, as an illustration though, if you say no to it, what's going to happen? One of two things, I'm going to correct you and it's going to hurt, or God's going to correct you and it's going to really hurt. You got, you need to make a, make a correction right now, don't you? Okay, let's do that. idolatry is easy it's just the creation we look at the creation and we don't and what do i mean by it i mean we give to something that god made what we should be giving to god idolatry that's all that's all it is i'm not saying you love it more or more affectionate toward it i'm saying that you don't have to think about that you just you give to the creation what you should be giving to the creator give yourself to something less than the one who made you and loves you, said his son to die for you. See what I mean? That's idolatry. It's, it's real subtle. We get into it very easily. And I believe that's the spirit of the world. This is uh, something that I think echoes in 1 John chapter 2. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. You see, this is something that we don't love. We don't love the world or the things that are in the world, says John in 1 John 2. And so we have not, says Paul, received the spirit of the world. Now that means that he doesn't know circuit design. Nothing wrong with it, but it's just part of the world. He doesn't know all the various things that are going on in popular and faddish. And, and see, you just can't get any tattoos because nothing is sufficiently permanent to reflect the infinite glory and eternality of God. You see, there, there's just nothing that really captures the Creator. And so there, there's no permanence to any of this world. And so Paul's like, we don't have any of this temporal, temporality stuff that i mean the things that the corinthians were interested in that they rejected paul in favor of of these other things we would be like well, that's something you can look up and it's interesting but we don't care about it now we're worried about the things we're worried about now because we're silly and we're transitory and we're faddish and stuck in time and we think that time is eternity 
But um, Paul says that's not the world, and so the great contrast is the Spirit from God. We've received the Spirit from God so that we may know the things by God freely given to us. I believe it's a complicated statement, but I think what he's saying is, I think what he's saying is that the riches of verse 9 can be known, first of all, through the, by the apostles because the Holy Spirit has given them through the apostles, us. And they've also received the human spirit, this regeneration that is essential to knowing God. You cannot have a spiritual life without a spirit, without a regenerated human spirit. And so the spirit from God, I believe, is what he's talking about here in verse uh, 14, so that we may know the things by God freely given to us. So even if you're reading the scroll, even if you had the autograph codex that Paul wrote where he wrote these words down or he dictated and his amanuensis wrote them down because he had trouble with his eyes. Even if you had that scroll and you don't have the spirit which is from God, you don't have access to what Paul's saying. And I, I think that this is vital. You might have heard it said before that unbelievers can't understand the word of God. In a sense, I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. I think it's exactly what unbelievers have no access to the word of God for its spiritual relational value. They cannot know God through the scriptures the way you and I come to know God through the scriptures. And he's going to tell you why in verse 13. We speak, we speak. Again, I think the we through this whole passage is Paul and the apostles. We do, verse 6, speak wisdom among the mature. Probably the most important word to figure out what, to, to understand what Paul is saying is the pronouns. When he says we, first person plural, he's talking about himself and the other apostles. I believe that's what he's saying. Because the Corinthians are rejecting the apostolic ministry. So he, he, could be, he, mean, he means me, Paul, and the we is Paul's class, the apostles. We speak not in taught of human wisdom words. I presented this verse a couple of weeks ago, and I had to go back and retranslate it because I, um, I missed my genitives and my datives. Never happens, but, you know, sometimes. And shame on you. And you for not catching me on them genitives and dative. I'm just, I'm just teasing. But right here, let me show you what this is, what's going on here in, in some detail. Notice I try to neck down and try to focus in on some things sometimes, and, but then give you the big picture. So we're going to really zoom in on verse 13 here. In my New American Standard, it says, uh, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That's not my New American Standard. Um, and... So here's what I think. Which things we also speak, relative, relative clause right here, which. Which things also we are speaking, and I think you could even take it to, I'm saying this right now as I write this, to you Corinthians, in the hearing of this reading, you're hearing Paul tell you what he's doing. We speak, not, uh, negative, not in taught, 
Adjective. Not in taught words. See, that's where I messed up. Not in taught words of human wisdom. So that's my translation. Not in taught of human wisdom words. I put it in the Greek order. Taught of human wisdom words. And so the New American Standard is right. I think it's a good translation. Not in words taught by human wisdom. That's the function of that genitive in that instance. So not in taught of human wisdom words. We just said you need to go to chapel and to physics class. You see? See see what I mean? You need to hear what the world has concluded from its observation of nature. You need to hear their account of epistemology, but always start with God's account and let God's account correct what the world does in its rebellion. Let me give you an example. The data doesn't change. Data is just the rocks and the cells and the trees and the flowers and the, 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 the data. But how you interpret the data really matters. There's no such thing, in other words, as raw facts. Just give me the facts. Well, there's no such thing for any human being to have raw facts because we are interpreters. We're going to read the facts a certain way. Animals that have eyes in the front and like to eat bananas. Primates, we have eyes in the front and we like to eat bananas. I could see why someone would pattern match and say, maybe there's something to the, the, the comparison. And so, because I mean, I don't look like a dragonfly, but I am kind of apish. Not even, apes don't even have tails. So maybe there's a relationship and we can even conjecture a, a, a generation. I came from that. But that's, that's the data. That's the data. You've got eyes in the front, eats bananas, no tail, right? But you don't have to interpret it that there's a genetic relationship of, of generation and transmission. In fact, that would be a gross error to do that because God made those animals after their kind and he made us as the image bearer that has dominion over the animals. And so there is no genetic relationship of, of generation between us, even though there are similarities in our physiology. See, the data is the data, but how you interpret it is going to matter. And so the human wisdom is all that man can do without the revelation of God. And, and what Paul is saying is, you Christians have no hope without the apostles telling you. And that's why we bound our New Testament together, because that's what the apostles gave us. We have no hope of the riches of verse 9 the things that the apostles speak, if we're going to depend on the philosophy departments or how they've influenced all the other departments. So data will always be interpreted. And so you, if you're interested in biology, you go be a biology to the glory of God. But you look up through nature to nature's God. And so here, not in, not in taught of human wisdom words, but in taught of Holy Spirit words. That is the literal Greek. Look right here. But in didactoi, look at, this, look at the, the symmetry here. It's just not going to come out when you have an English um, when you have an English translation. For some reason, we just we, we don't want it to be so tight. Look at this. One of you is going to want to come up here and see how I use the pen like this on the, on the screen. But do you see that? It's the exact same words and the exact same letters because those two words are prepositions, and they're and, and n takes the dative case always, and so. 
um, it's, it's very parallel. It's exact opposites. And that's why I'm saying there's a great contrast here. Not in taught of human wisdom words, but in taught, didactois. That's, a, that's what this word is, didactois. D-I-D-A-K-T-O-S-O-I-S uh, in, this, in this declension. And in um, and, and, and the dative plural. And the idea here is the adjective taught. Taught. And so I've translated here, taught. T-A-U-G-H-T. Now, if you saw a Bible printed with this, the way I've translated it, you would say, this guy's not very good at English. And, and I would be like, um, if you click on the link in the YouTube video below for the guy explaining the translation, I'd say, this is not a good English translation. It bears some explaining. You need someone to explain what's going on. But it is a great Greek translation into English almost into an interlinear style. Now, this is the kind of thing, I've had people ask me, why do you get so detailed and technical? And, uh, you know, the people don't want to hear that. I do. And Paul did this. He said, endodactoys, endodactoys, and it's tight. The, uh, the, the opposition is very obvious. And I could observe this in English all day. I could stare at it in English and not see that. Because the English people, the English translators changed it around. Now, you get the gist. You definitely get what the meaning is, but you don't see how he said it. And I, there, to me, there's something about that process. I once had a professor who was a computer science um, geek, a computer science professor, a uh, computer engineering professor, explained to me the difference between the computer science software department and the uh, engineering hardware department that I was in. And uh, I was complaining about how I could not get my codes to compile and that obviously God had not given me the spiritual gift of that kind of languages. And, um, and I, even though I spent so much time in my education learning to program, it wasn't my calling. It's a certain kind of brain, and I learned that I, I, this is not it. And, um, and by the way, the best coders I know are not graduates of college. They're people that learned it, and they're good at it, and they, they might have gone to college, but they didn't learn it in college. Anyway, my, my hardware professor says, um, do you want to be a race car driver or do you want to be the race car builder, the, the manufacturer designer that knows it inside out and can drive it? Which one do you want to be? That was how they beat up on the computer science department. I said, well, actually, sir, I can do neither. <laughs> I'm not really marked out for either, but I'm going to learn it the best I can. There's one other guy in the course with me. We went through all the classes together. All these guys were Signal Corps-headed officers. The Signal Corps is the guys that... that um, do all the communications, the radio te- technology. They're the guys that are actually applying electrical engineering to the Army. And um, there was one other guy in all the classes with me, and we were not Signal Corps bound. We were not headed to go be Signal Corps. I had a friend whose dad was in there. He said that their, their motto was, you can talk about us, but you can't talk without us. It's just a little in, in intramural Army stuff. Um, the... Um, the, the other student that I was all friends with, well, I was friends with everybody, but um, we would always kind of make eye contact in the middle of class where we're like, you know what's going on here? <laughs> no, I don't know what's going on. And he went infantry and I went armor. <laughs> There's a reason for that. But anyway, um, so um, the, uh, the idea of the things that are being taught in whether it's human wisdom or the words really of the Holy Spirit uh, could not be more uh, stark. And I think right here, pneumatos hagiu. That's this word right here. Pneumatos hagiu. That's the, uh, the word for spirit. And 
in the in the genitive case, possessive, uh, or or in this case the um, um, subjective genitive, and then this is hagios for holy. And when you say Holy Spirit, I mean verse thirteen has to be the third person of the Trinity. It has to be. So that's why you've got to have the Holy Spirit in the same passage with the Spirit of the world and the human spirit. So the things that we are speaking are not in taught of human wisdom words, but in taught of Holy Spirit words. That's what's going on in Paul's contrast. And so, well, how do we get hold of those Holy Spirit words? That's the most important question for our time that we live in today. A lot of people think that the Holy Spirit words come from you just sitting there tearing in your closet until the Holy Spirit gives you some words. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying we, the apostles, are giving these riches to you in what we're saying. And remember the context. He's trying to help them understand they need to listen to him because they're rejecting his ministry. Listen to the word of God is really the the whole context for this. Listen to the word of God. It's wealth that you can't imagine in verse 9. But it's from Holy Spirit taught words. With spiritual, spiritual words, spiritual ones combining is the hard Greek there. But um, this is the means by which they're taught by the Spirit. He is combining spiritual with spiritual. Combining spiritual with spiritual. And you have to figure out it's spiritual words, because it's the words he's talking about before, with spiritual people. And he's going to define who those are. So he's introduced the spiritual person, and now he's going to introduce the soulish person. But the soulish man does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God. Spirit of God, pneumatos, or, uh, top pneumatos, that's the Holy Spirit. The soulish, sukikos man does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God. This means a person that is described by soul, but not spirit. We're going to hear from the spiritual man in a minute that Paul is talking to, and they understand its wisdom. But this is the soulish man, and this is part of the great contrast. The soulish man does not welcome decomai, the things of God. Can anybody tell me what decomai means? To welcome. In your Bible, it says welcome, probably, or receive. And I want you to watch this one closely. There's a great paper by a scholar and pastor named J.B. Hickson on this. He wrote it at the seminary I'm at right now. He wrote this for for their journal. 10 or 15 years ago. I used it in seminary back when I was in my master's program. And, um, and he went through how this, uh, this verb, decomai, means to receive or welcome. It means to want it. See, if, if I have a message for you, you might understand what I'm saying, but if you don't want it, you're not welcoming it. You may not really process it. You may not understand the significance or agree with it. Or relate to it properly because you're not welcome. It and and have you ever tried to talk to somebody about the word and that's not welcome? Yeah, we just had Thanksgiving, or no, I mean whenever. Whenever you're around people and you want to, you're praying, Lord, can I share the word with someone? And you can't because it's not welcome. That's what he's talking about. The soulish man does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God. Now watch, for they are foolishness to him. There's a persecution in this verse. There's a persecution. What this means is that if I'm right, that the word of God is what Paul's discussing in verse 9, and I am, and that is therefore the most valuable thing in all of God's gifts to us, of all the things you can imagine, better than horn frogs or, uh, or video games or digital logic or any of the great things. Get rid of everything if you could just hang on to the Bible, to the word of God. That's how, the, that's how Paul's saying it. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard. 
the things that God has freely given to us, and we know them because of the Spirit. Now, if that's true, then the most important thing to me in all the world is foolishness and garbage to the world. There's persecution there. The most valuable thing to me will be considered stupid and garbage to the world. Know that. Don't walk around all defensive and ready to, they're going to think I'm stupid. But know that that's the way, that's the nature of the war you're in. You are at war. It's a war of ideas. And this is the way the foolishness, the wisdom of the world works. So the things of God are foolishness to him. He's not able to know them. He is not able, this soulish man, this unbeliever, is not able to know these things because they are spiritually discerned. Now, my Bible translates in verse 14, appraised. Appraised and discerned are synonyms. I've chosen discerned. I think it's a better uh, rendering for English today. Spiritually discerned. And so, we speak wisdom among the mature. The mature believer hears these things. The baby believer needs to listen and believe. Just turn your faith on and, and, and listen to what God has to say to you. Okay? But the foolish, the the... the the unbeliever has no access. But the spiritual discerns all things. I translate spiritual man, discerns all things. Same verb as verse 14. They're spiritually discerned. The spiritual man does this. He anacrinos, he can discern all things. What does that mean to discern all things? Do you mean if you feel, if you're spiritual that you know everything? It doesn't mean that. It means that you've got a sufficient fellowship with God and an empowerment by the Spirit of God in your human spirit with a saturation of the Word of God from the Holy Spirit that He is then able in you to equip you to test everything. You can test it against God's Word, and it's real simple. Submissive to Him or rebellious against Him. That's it's easy to discern all things. Well, it's possible to discern all things in those terms, in terms of welcoming the things of God, submitting to the Creator. Now, I, I, there will be things you'll have questions about, but if you turn it into the question of are we submitting to our Creator or rebelling against Him generally, it'll be pretty straightforward. He discerns all things, but He by no one is Himself discerned. And I think that in context means the world doesn't know what He's doing. The world... The, Kantian epistemologists can't get in there and figure out what's going on with this person. Why are you so sure about what you believe? For he who has known the mind of the Lord or who will teach or instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. I think from verse 6 through verse 16, we is the apostles. That might be offensive, but I think that's what he's saying. We, for sure, it's the apostles. It might also be we who have the Holy Spirit have the mind of Christ. And I think... I've, I've come down different ways on what the mind of Christ refers to. What is the mind of Christ? What, what does that mean? What's he referring to? It could be probably one of three things. It, it is certainly one thing, but it, there are three possibilities. It could be the equipment to think like Jesus thinks. Like I have a human spirit. I'm equipped by the Holy Spirit with my human spirit to think the thoughts of God. It could be that. Sometimes I've, I've often concluded that's what he's talking about, and it's certainly possible. I guess there's only really two. The other one is that we have the content that Christ thinks. We have the spiritual information that he's been talking about, the things he's been discussing all through the passage. So which is it? 
Well, you have to come back next time. Now, I, I, <laughs> I think we have the mind of Christ is the um, content that the apostles are talking about in verse 9, the things that I hasn't seen. We have the mind of Christ, and we're trying to give it to you. It's the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, which would be synonymous with what? What is the mind of Christ? If it's the things that Paul is giving you, then what is it? It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. The mind of Christ. Now, I'm, notice how dogmatic I am. On, I mean, tomorrow I may say, no, no, th- these five reasons in context, he's talking about the capability to think like the Lord, to, to discern all things and appraise all things. And it, I could be wrong. And the Lord's going to, when I get to heaven, the Lord's going to say, that was a hard passage, wasn't it? And I'll say, yes, sir. And I didn't want to say anything against what you meant. And I sought your meaning constantly. And he said, yeah, it's, uh, there were lots of ambiguities, but you got the gist. That's what he's going to say. Pretty sure. You have to wait and see. Okay. Well, let's finish the contrast. That's the end of verse 16. I, brethren, was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men. You couldn't discern wisdom from me. You're comparing me to the town philosopher. You have no idea what I'm saying. Because when I speak, you hear foolishness. Why? I'm not speaking to you as spiritual, but as to carnal, fleshly. Sarkikos. There's, th- there's lots of words through here. There's the pneumatikos, the spiritual. Pneumatikos, the sarkikos, the fleshly. Or carnal is the old translation. Um, or the, um, the uh, sukikos, the soulish. So here's, the, here's how this works. Spiritual is the believer who has the human spirit through regeneration and is being filled by the Holy Spirit with the Word of God. It's all three. It's the new birth plus saturation with the Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the spiritual believer. And that would be a mature believer. And I think the maturity we're talking about isn't it 20 years of time invested. It's what are you doing with what you've been given at this moment? A, a believer who is maxing out what he has. And so careful about newborn believers being mature believers. I don't want to misunderstand. But the Corinthians should know better by now, and they don't. That's the point. I, I, I wanted to speak to you as spiritual men, but, but I couldn't. I had to speak to you as, as fleshly as to babes in Christ. Okay, Napioi, the baby is a reference to spiritual maturity. And that is interesting because so far I've been thinking he's talking about either I'm walking by the Spirit or I'm walking according to the flesh. And he is, but now he's introduced maturity into it. You're babies. You're just babies. You shouldn't be babies at this point. You should be able to, to put two and two together, but you can't. I gave you milk to drink and not food, not solid food, for you were not yet able and you are still, indeed you are still not able now. That is really not, very polite to say to other believers that is not nice to tell them that they can't handle the good riches of God's grace and his word that I want to give you the writer of Hebrews says the same thing in chapter 5 you should all be teachers by now and I have to go back to the basics and you're dull of hearing and you shouldn't be and um that'll preach that'll harangue we could do all kinds of Christian haranguing with that but that's how Paul talks to the Corinthians and I want you to see that they're carnal and that looks like brand new believer that doesn't know anything because they're not being filled with the word by the spirit of God as they walk. So they have the human spirit, but they're acting like they don't. And then what he says next is crazy. You are still fleshly for when there is, for when there is among you jealousy and strife and dissension, are you not fleshly? See that I know 
by your fruit, not that you don't have the Spirit, which is from God. I know by your fruit that you're not spiritual. You're not filled by the Spirit with the Word. You're not walking in a worthy manner of your call, manner worthy of your calling. Are you not fleshly? And according to man, are you not walking? What that according to man means, are you not walking like an unbeliever? Can a Christian act like an unbeliever? Yeah. And some of you are like, why well, did I, I never really would have thought of that? I'm like, look in the mirror. Yes. We can be petty jerks. We can be just as sinful as an unbeliever. Well, not going to be not, not that bad. Well, neither are they. The unbeliever down the street isn't the worst person in town. They're basically a pretty good person. But they don't think the thoughts of God. They think like mere men. They think according to the wisdom of the world. Yeah, a believer can think like an unbeliever. They're acting like unbelievers in the church because there's dissension and jealousy and strife among them. They're carnal. According to man, they're walking. And so this is the problem in Corinth, and, and it's a complicated passage. Who thinks this is a complicated passage? Who followed everything I said tonight? Who was distracted by all the college references to, um, to my, my fun stories? I was. I distracted myself. But we'll move on. Who's ever seen that guy before? William Chatterton Dix. W. William C. Dix. Who knows what country this guy's from? Somebody give me a country. Give you a clue. 19th century. 1800s. Good guess, candidate. No. <laughs> yes, yes, he's from England. Uh, what song in the hymnal did he write? I'll give you another hint. It's a Christmas carol. Think English melodies with really good Christian lyrics that got tacked on to a good English tune. Nope. Joy to the World was, uh, that was all Wesley. No, Watts, Isaac Watts, sorry. 18th century. Nope. The answer to the question was, what child is this? Who wagered $50? You get the boat. Okay. What child is this? Now, this is Greensleeves. I think that tune way antedates the song that Dix wrote uh, probably toward the end of the of the 1800s. So I went looking for his hymns and I just wanted to contrast him with Mr. Jingle Bells because um, these are obviously of two different worlds. There's, that's the great contrast. The wisdom of the world is let's play, have, and have fun and just dally. And the wisdom of God is think about what happened when God came in the flesh, the riches of his revelation. Now, um, this is not nice to do, to compare this, the writers of Sesame Street to William Shakespeare. I mean, that's not nice. But I do want to use the illustration because um, my kids are dealing with that. They think half the time in their mind, they're thinking jingle bells. And most of the time, we're trying to teach them to think, what child is this? You know what I mean? About the Lord and, and make their lives focused on him. So I went looking for Dix's um, um, uh, hymns that he, that he wrote. And in 61 years, he wrote a lot. Um, hymnary.org is a great place to check out um, Christian music, Christian hymns through the whole church age, what we have. And um, the, uh, the list 
is, is a multiple page list of just the songs uh, that he came up with. And I just scrolled through and picked one. And I wanted you to hear something that he wrote. It was, um, he's born in 1837, died in 1898. Um, and never, uh, and both of those were in England. And um, this was a song, um, I think it's we give, I think it's we, to thee, O Lord, we give our praise or something like that. But it's about um, offering yourself to God as the first fruits. So um, he says, to thee, O Lord, our hearts we raise in hymns of adoration. To thee bring sacrifice of praise with shouts of exultation, bright robes of gold, the fields adorn, the hills with joy are ringing. He's talking about food on the, on the ground. He's talking about the, the harvest, bright fields of gold. Okay, the hills are, with joy are ringing. The valley stands so thick with corn that even they are singing. So this is a harvest song about God has blessed us with provision he's provided for our needs. Then he says, and now on this our festal day, thy bounteous hand confessing, upon thine altar, Lord, we lay the first fruits of thy blessing. By thee the hungry soul is fed with gifts of grace supernal. Thou who dost give us earthly bread, give us the bread eternal. Okay, so just think about, I, I don't know the context in which he wrote this, or what, but just think about what he's saying. We're going to gather this harvest in. We're thanking you for the physical provision, but we really want the manna from heaven. We really want the, 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 the heavenly relationship with God. Now, this is the kind of worship that I, I understand from the scriptures. It isn't just we come together on Sunday. It's all of life. Your whole life is to be worshiped. And so we're out in the field harvesting, Thank you, God, for the, for the food you provided. Now give us the real bread from heaven. That's, that's what he's kind of saying, and I love that. I think it's a beautiful thought. We bear the burden of the day, and often toil seems dreary, but labor ends with sunset ray. The rest comes for the weary. Now, it's a labor song. It's hard work, and he's, he's talking to God about the work that they do, and yet God graces them with the sunset. Have you ever waited for sunset? Have you ever been in such a hot situation that the sun starts to set and you thank God that drops 20 degrees and you get that break? I felt that in Iraq. I got done with heat in 2004. I did not ever need to see another uh, 160 degree in the sun day. You're like, it wasn't 160 degrees in the sun. It was. In the shade, it was 120. In the, in the sun, my thermometer said 160. Well, the sun was heating it up. I'm like, right, it's hot. And... Uh, <laughs> When the temperature is going to drop from 125 in the shade to 85 in the shade, you are looking forward to that. And you've got a jacket on at 85 degrees because that's a major differential. But um, just to, to kind of dramatize this, that beautiful thought about labor ends with the sunset and you have that beautiful majestic painting that God gives you on a clear day when the sun's out and you get some clouds and you get that beautiful sunset. Rest comes for the weary. May we, the angel reaping ore, stand at the last accepted. He just skipped from the labor of this life and the harvest to what life is really about at the end of life and seeing himself as part of God's harvest. Stand at last accepted. Christ's golden sheaves forevermore to garner's bright elected. So you could think about poetry and think about what the author's really saying. And um, he's got two layers of meaning in this poem. O blessed is the land of God where saints abide forever, where golden fields spread far and broad, where flows the crystal river. He's talking about heaven. The strains of all its holy throng with ours today are blending. Thrice blessed is that harvest song which never hath an ending. Now, um, I like the little ballad of the guy that's cutting out on his creditors because I think it's funny and it's gold rush era poetry. I love Robert Service, same kind of stuff. 
I love, read Robert Service poems. He's great. Everything he wrote. Um, I've never read something that I wouldn't say is, is clean enough for you to read. But, um, uh, but, but that's just fun. This is, this is rich because it's a reference to the re- revelation of God and his love for you. And um, that's why I'm so excited to ask, can we sing What Child Is This? Can we close that tonight on that? Would, would that be okay? Because there's one person here that could play it. <laughs> Claire, would you mind? It is one eight zero. One eight zero. Might as well stand to sing, you're going to stand to leave. So. <laughs>
Father and our God, we praise you. Thank you for this time and the word. Thank you for the salvation that we have through Christ our Lord. Thank you for the, this wonderful time of the year when we celebrate the birth of his humanity, the babe in the manger. Father, we look forward to the Christmas time together. We look forward to the joy that it brings. And Thank you for the word, Father. And uh, as we go out, may the Holy Spirit make it real to us so that we can apply it in our lives and grow in the sphere of grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.